Welcome to the third episode of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this podcast was put together on the land of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and acknowledged their traditional owners, past, present and emerging leaders. This podcast is put together by the team at the Living Free Project, a unique place-based partnership approach encompassing both service delivery and project coordination. These two elements work together to improve service system responses for vulnerable girls and women and provides a voice of advocacy to highlight the need for system reform. The team have embarked on the podcast journey in order to share their learnings and experiences and also provide a platform for the community to hear from others working to improve outcomes for women in the community and also to hear from those women impacted personally. With current restrictions in place, we are recording online, so please bear with us on some shaky audio. We hope that the content makes up for it. Thanks for listening. I hope you're doing well. And this third episode is titled, What the Research Tells Us. Today, we are here with Dr. Rachel Hale from Federation University Australia, our resident feminist criminologist, to talk about her research into women's pathways to desistance from crime. Welcome, Rachel. It's exciting to have you on the podcast. Now, can you explain to our listeners and me what is meant by the theories of gender and desistance? Sure. So theories of desistance from crime are basically looking at the cessation of offending, so stopping offending and explaining why and how that happens. So Within criminology, desistance theories have been around since about the late 80s, early 90s. That's when they really flourished. And there's a range of explanations that have developed since then about why people stop offending. It's a bit of a tricky thing to measure and define because ultimately you're looking at the absence of something. So rather than measuring recidivism and re-offending, you're looking at the absence of offending. So there's been a bit of debate about how to measure desistance from crime. Basically, uh, it's taken to be a process, so a journey where there's peaks and lulls in offending behaviour. Now, in terms of the research around assistance, much of that research has been conducted with men, which is very typical uh, in criminology. So we know a lot more about why men desist from crime um, and relatively less about why women stop offending. What drove you to do your thesis on this subject? In regards to the motivation for my thesis, um, there's an obvious gap there in the literature around understanding why women desist from crime. So for a doctoral thesis, you have to find a gap in the knowledge base. So the fact that we knew relatively less about why women desist was a key motivator. And so wanting to contribute something unique um, to the knowledge base. Um, But on a more personal level for me, my background hasn't been all that privileged. And um, whilst I grew up in a very loving family, um, I'm no stranger to disadvantage. And so I had questions around uh, why then did I find myself in such a privileged position being at university, given my experiences, and why did I end up um, where I was? So an interest in individual pathways um, and in understanding more about people's, women's uh, lived experiences, pathways into and out of Uh, offending and specifically um, hearing their stories so listening to their experiences and then being able to give voice to those experiences Um, so that 
really shaped the um, focus of my research. And I've just generally always had a passion for social justice and interest in, in prison. So all of the pieces of the puzzle sort of fit together and that's how I landed on my thesis, which was um, gendered pathways to the distance. Yeah. yeah, great. Thanks for that. One of the best things about working in, living, in the Living Free Project is connecting with the women who are in the program. You interviewed eight women with prisoner experience for your thesis, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, can you tell us a bit about this experience? Yeah, sure. From the outset, I knew that recruiting women would be really challenging for the study, um, particularly women who were incarcerated, because there tends to be a reluctance to support critical or what some might call controversial research uh, or contentious research. So instead, what I decided to do was to recruit women who were living post-release in the community. Um, and I was able to do that with the generous support of two post-release support agencies in Victoria. So yeah, I ended up um, interviewing eight women, um, but also six support workers to get their perspective as well. Um, and it would have been great to speak to more women, particularly women from uh, ethnic minority communities and um, Indigenous women, because their experiences are obviously very unique. But nonetheless, I, the women that I spoke to, seven of them were of Caucasian background, and one of them um, had Tongan heritage, and they range in age from 19 to 42 years. Um, six of them had been incarcerated once, one woman had been incarcerated twice, and one woman had been incarcerated on seven separate occasions. Most of the women I found were really eager to talk to me about their experiences and they were very open with me regarding the information that they shared and not always immediately. So uh, I remember there was one woman who said to me, oh yeah, I'll talk to you but you probably won't understand because you've had everything handed to you on a silver platter and you're at university and then I shared with her a bit of my own background and it, it slowly changed. She was like, oh, okay, she's all right, you know, I can trust her and then she opened up and we spoke for almost two hours and the interview was supposed to go for an hour and that was typical with most of the women. And I'm sure that they could have kept talking and I could have kept listening, but obviously there's that boundary there between the researcher and the participant. Um, and I found that particularly challenging to balance as well because you have people in front of you who you've never met before who are telling you about the most intimate and personal details of their life, um, you know, traumatic experiences of abuse, victimization, and really difficult then to walk away from that and just end those relationships. So that filled me with a sense of responsibility in, in wanting to do something really meaningful with the women's experiences and, and stories. So it was a real privilege to be able to bear witness to their experiences. So I must say, I was very excited to come across your research and it speaks to our experiences in the Living Free Project and confirms so much that we've been advocating for and trying to raise awareness for through the project. Your paper acknowledges that criminalisation of women is often related to systemic and structural disadvantage. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, sure. So going back to desistance theory, uh, much of the research in that area is focused on an individual level. So looking at the within individual changes that are associated with stopping offending. So whether that is the cognitive transformations or internal shifts in identity. And that research is obviously really important and it's certainly useful, but there's also this intersecting 
bigger picture macro context around individual lives and pathways into and out of offending. So when we're talking about structural disadvantage, what we're talking about is disadvantage that's a result of the way that our society functions. So, you know, who has power and who doesn't? Who has access to opportunities um, and, and who doesn't? And given that we live in a patriarchal society, women have relatively less uh, advantage and power than men. So if we think of things like poverty, homelessness, uh, unemployment, those are all gendered in that they're amplified for women relative to men. Um, and those things uh, influence the way that society responds to women um, who are experiencing those problems. So the women that I spoke to all expressed intentions to desist. So they had good intentions, if you like, and they all had hoped for a different life and they were sick of offending and they wanted to break out of that and they wished for something else for themselves. But despite that, they had that readiness and openness to desist, they didn't have access to the mechanisms and opportunities to be able to actually action those intentions. And that's because of the structural disadvantage that they experienced. And the prime example of that would be the mothers in the sample who said that they would rather commit an offence and steal to provide for their child, so whether that's food or clothing, if that meant that they were being a good mother. And that's because of the structural disadvantage that they experience. For women who um, use drugs to cope with, with trauma, um, they are often criminalised, so charged and imprisoned for drug-related offences. Um, so there's really a bigger picture here um, beyond the individual in terms of the way that we respond to disadvantage as a society. Um, and that really disproportionately impacts um, upon women. Yeah, definitely. I think Lisa's wanting to jump in now with a couple of questions, Lisa. Yeah, th thanks, Rachel. I know that there's been so much research done in relation to the difference between women and offending as opposed to males and their pathways, I guess, in and out of the justice system. So for research sites, a number of academics who highlight this uniqueness don't actually have any gender-specific responses either to the prevention end nor around, um, I guess, rehabilitation either. So what, what are your thoughts around why we might not have them? Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lisa, that there um, is a plethora of research. There's so much research out there about the drivers of offending, both for men and women. And certainly there's an evidence base around what works. Um, to reduce offending, to prevent offending. So there are really no excuses for not having addressed these issues, certainly not due to a lack of knowledge. So it seems rather illogical that we're not reducing offending and that imprisonment rates continue to increase. And so we have to ask then what else is going on? You know, what, what else is at play here? And I think then that brings into play the political aspects of this and the context of this. And over the past decade across Australia, but particularly in Victoria, we've seen this law and order crackdown on crime, very punitive responses. We've seen um, stricter parole conditions. We've seen changes to bail and, and the difficulty of receiving bail, uh, particularly for women who don't have you know, a fixed address. So they're being refused bail, being 
remanded. Um, and this is all down to those law and order, tough on crime, political responses. And that's a very powerful and persuasive political tool. So that I think that has played into the reasons why we haven't been able to address these issues, particularly for women and lack of um, gender uh, responsivity. But also when we do attempt to be gender responsive, um, it's been utilised or applied in the correction space. So where we do see gender responsive strategies, they tend to be, or programs, they tend to be focused in that carceral space. So when women are in custody and, you know, no matter how many therapeutic programs we offer in, in prison, how many counselling sessions, um, how intensive the case management is or what colour we paint the walls, it's still a prison at the end of the day. And so a lot of the therapeutic gains that might be made in that space are often uh, cancelled out by the oppressive and traumatic nature of the carceral environment. And so I think we're focusing our attention in terms of, in terms of gender responsivity in the wrong place. And you mentioned prevention before. And so I think we need to shift our attention to uh, a more preventative focus. And I think the fact that we haven't been doing that, um, and there are, again, some reasons related to, to politics uh, as to why we're not, you know, it's not overly popular with a conservative votership to invest in social welfare and to assist the most disadvantaged persons within our community. Yeah, so we've, we've not been doing that. And I, and I think that's why we have seen that things haven't changed. For, for a very long time. And until we do invest in prevention, things will continue as they are, if, if not continue to get worse, which is what we're seeing with the rates of incarceration, particularly of women, uh, namely Indigenous women. Your research, Rachel, looks a lot about some of the characteristics of the women that participated in the research and I guess some of the common trends and themes and how that relates to their existence. So do you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So in looking at the women's experiences holistically, so I looked at their experiences from childhood right through to post-release. Uh, in terms of the pre-incarceration experiences, uh, it was apparent that all of the women had experienced significant trauma and had accumulated disadvantage from a very early age. So uh, experiences of victimisation as children, particularly sexual abuse, were pervasive across the, the sample experiences of homelessness or transiency in terms of their housing situations also from a very early age. So a lot of the women had left the family home as teenagers and were living on the streets surrounded by other young people who tended to be using drugs and alcohol and engaging in crime. So that was very common pre-incarceration. Obviously then you start to see the emergence of mental health um, issues and so mental illness at that point. So it really struck me that, you know, from such an early age, there was this deeply ingrained disadvantage and trauma and it was, it just continued to accumulate. So throughout prison, that experience was, it was interesting, actually, that experience was traumatic, but the women also explained that they felt very included in, in that environment and very protected and a lot of their needs were being met. I think that's a very sad reality if we're resorting to, to prisons to address the needs of these women. And that, and then, sorry to interrupt. I just was really interested on your views of the role of the health and community services. If, if women have to prison in order to feel included and, I guess, safe and secure, yet they've got histories of complex trauma, 
um, mental health, where does, what's the responsibility or the role of health and community services? I think there's a, there's a belief that people access them if they need, but from our experience in the Living Free Project, it's tend to fall through the gap. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the support that these women need is, is support that should be offered in the community. Certainly shouldn't take um, incarceration to, to receive the, the support that they need. So I agree with you. I think that that is where the support needs to come from to talk about funding. We're pouring millions of dollars into building prisons and we're locking people up to address social problems. And so that spending on prisons is diverting funds away from those supports in the community, um, those services in the community, but also um, healthcare provision of, of healthcare to people in need. So I think that that um, is a key issue that needs to be, be addressed. And I think we need to stop relying on prisons to address what are social problems. So even though somebody has broken the law and committed an offence, when we look at the underlying drivers of that, they're, they are often health-related issues, mental health specifically. So I, I agree, you know, it's, it's, there is a role there, a huge role for community-based agencies for the healthcare system to be able to provide uh, that support. And I think, yeah, we need to really ask ourselves, you know, what's going on in our community if we can't provide the most disadvantaged members of our community with the support that they need outside, if we have to put people into such a punitive environment and deprive them of their liberty and freedom just so that they can get support. So I think we really need to challenge what we're using prisons for um, because that's not what prisons should be, be used for. And I think that question around or that issue around funding is really central and it comes back that that is tied to that law and order approach um, and that investment in the criminal justice system at the detriment of investing in community-based responses. Going to post-release, I guess, you know, you talked a little bit about how the women have uh, in prison feel a sense of social connection. Um, and then upon release, you know, you referred to other services in the community and sometimes it just doesn't work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you think the challenges are when these women are released back into the community and what could be done to improve their sort of rehabilitation once they're out. Many of those issues that I talked about before in the pre-incarceration context are still there upon release, if not they're worse. Yeah. Um, if we think about the fact that women can often be kicked off public housing waiting lists when they're in prison, so they, they might lose their rental property, lack of access to welfare benefits, and they have to start that process over again upon release. So in terms of material and economic capital, um, there are a whole lot of issues there with incarceration disrupting access to, to those types of supports. So difficulties finding uh, appropriate, safe, stable housing upon release was a, was a key issue. And many of the women that I spoke to didn't have a choice over where they lived. They just had to take whatever was given to them. So often that housing was in areas with other people who had been uh, recently incarcerated or who had an offending history or were engaging in drug and alcohol um, misuse. And for women with children, that was not an ideal environment for them to be able to uh, reunite with their children. So there were barriers then to reunification with children. Mm. But also, if we think about the trauma of incarceration and shifting from 
what was, as described by the women, a relatively inclusive environment compared to the, the community, and then returning to the margins and the periphery, um, mm -hmm. particularly with the criminal record. And so that sense of exclusion that the women felt uh, and isolation and loneliness really fed into their continued drug use in order to cope with that experience. So, pro, sorry, pro-social connections and, um, you know, the importance of building trust, yeah. I guess, is, yeah, really with that long-standing trauma as well, do you think that would be really beneficial for these young women? Absolutely, yeah. So I think in terms of addressing the the needs of women post-release, there's obviously those material needs. But um, you're exactly right. There's that social element of it as well. And that was really central to, to the women's narratives of what they needed to desist or what they wanted to desist. So that sense of inclusion. So I think connecting them in with uh, pro-social um, people within the community. So the women said to me, you know, I, I want to engage with those people, but I just don't know where to go to find them or um, I don't think that they will accept me or I've tried and they, they don't accept me. So I think as a community, we have an obligation and a responsibility then to integrate those women back into the mainstream. So when we talk about reintegration, we often just assume that people are released from prison and they return back into the mainstream community. And that's certainly not the case with criminalised women. So I use the term reintegration into exclusion to acknowledge that um, these women are returning back to the periphery of the community. So things like mentoring, you know, engagement in recreational activities and, and clubs, um, connections with support workers are also really integral um, to uh, desistance pathways post-release. So the women that tended to be doing better post-release were those that had a really good rapport with their support worker. And that relationship had started very early in their um, sentence. So I think through care is very important to here. Um, building that relationship early. So there is that trust. Um, and so the relationship is very strong um, when that woman is was released. And so a couple of the women had said to me that the only pro-social connections they had were, or the people that they had spoke to that were straight, meaning that they hadn't offended or been in prison, were their support worker and then myself. And I was shocked by that. You know, they'd only just met me. Um, and so they said all of the, the other people that they were surrounded by and connected with were people who had offended. And so it was a real challenge for them because obviously then to be able to desist, they needed to disconnect from a lot of the people that they'd known for a very long time, um, intimate partners as well. So ending romantic relationships with people. And so that led them to feel very isolated and lonely. So it's about then filling that gap with positive uh, meaningful relationships and connections that are going to support the women to be able to action their intentions to, to cease offending. Rachel, your research speaks so strongly to what we're seeing in the Living Free Project. Everything, you know, we concur with everything that you've found in your research and what you've been saying. I'm really interested on your views in terms of what would be the ideal response right through the continuum from from preventing women becoming criminalised for their social, I guess, social and emotional um, challenges right through to what will help integrate into the positive aspects and, I guess, reduce recidivism. And what, what's your take on what would be the ideal? Yeah, I think the ideal gold standard would be exactly what you're doing with the Living Free Project because 
It's preventative, it's not reactionary, it's about early intervention. So engaging with young women and girls who are not yet in contact with the system, but who are at risk of engaging with the system. So I know that you're working with girls who have been reported missing, because we know a lot of those red flags or indicators that we can, and I don't mean to preempt, you know, and intervene and, and suggest that we intervene in people's lives when they haven't offended, but it's about providing the supports that are needed at that point to ensure that those women then don't go on to, to offend and find themselves um, engaging with the criminal justice system. Because at that point, even in terms of police contact, but particularly in terms of incarceration, for me, that's too late in the game. And, and again, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't be engaging and supporting those women. Certainly we should. But I think as the gold standard, our attention should be directed, funding should be directed towards those preventative community-based um, alternatives. So focusing on decarceration, focusing on not criminalising women for their social disadvantage and trauma and engaging with those young women who may be particularly vulnerable to engaging in offending and, and with the system. So I think that's the gold standard. And then in terms of what we do in prison, as I mentioned before, it's obviously very limited by the, the environment. Um, and so I think it's it's great if we can offer therapeutic programs that are evidence-based and they also need to be evaluated, uh, which often doesn't happen, so that we know whether they are working. Um, but also taking a, a through care approach and not leaving it until two weeks before release to start engaging women with those services and supports. So kind of limited in, in the correction space, in my opinion, as to how impactful those therapeutic um, or rehabilitative interventions um, can be. And then obviously, post-release, as we talked about before, it's those uh, social supports for women who do find themselves caught up in the system. Yeah, but I think, um, yeah, back to the Living Free project, I think it's a great model. Um, it's evidence-based. And as a criminologist, as an academic, that's exactly the type of thing that we would support and suggest would be most efficacious and impactful in addressing the issues that we're talking about here today. Do you think the main reasons around that would be the the holistic response and the longer term sort of case management that the Living Free Project offer? Absolutely, yeah. And I think bringing multiple agencies and partners on board as well. Um, so engaging with health care providers, engaging with, with police, so that really integrated, multidisciplinary, holistic uh, approach um, but doing that at the front end from a preventative perspective before that there's that subsequent accumulation of disadvantage and trauma because it's very difficult once all of that stuff accumulates to be able to undo those experiences. So, um, yeah, I think all aspects of, of the project are um, speak to, to the evidence that we have and that's the type of thing that we would want to see funded, not building more prisons and sending more um, people, women specifically, uh, uh, into prison, but having them um, connected with projects like Living Free Project. You, you should be on our payroll, Rachel. You... <laughs> <laughs> we haven't set this up. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 they didn't pay me before. <laughs> no, no, no. But honestly, I really think that, you know, projects like yours are so important and often those are the projects that have to fight really hard the funding and to try to justify themselves but back to that point before about the the evidence being there that I don't think there are any excuses for 
you know, you know, we know what works. There's no excuses for not investing in these. Um, and, and so I really think we need to be quite critical. And this is where the critical part of the, the feminist criminologist comes out in me. I think we really need to ask questions about why we're doing what we're doing and why aren't we investing more in, in projects like this? Why don't we have projects like this available to a broader range of women, um, you know, particularly thinking about women from ethnic minority communities, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, women living in um, rural and remote communities. So this is the stuff that we need to be doing. This is the work that we need to be doing more of. So yeah, I genuinely do think that you're doing a great job and we've got a great model there with the um, project. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really good to have your insights and um, yeah, the plethora of research you've done is just amazing around these young women. So I uh, can't, can't wait to read the next next sort of paper that you release. So Yeah, thanks. Just to do comments? a plug on that if I can. Yeah, yeah, do a plug. Yeah, yeah. A forthcoming article, uh, the data release is yet to be advised, but there'll be an article titled Good Intentions, uh, Women's Pathways to Desistance coming out in the uh, Feminist Criminology Journal. So it'll be great to be able to disseminate that more broadly and, and hopefully internationally and then continue to do some of that, that research and, and hopefully working with people like yourselves and other agencies within the community to assist women. Yeah, so thank Brilliant. you so much for having me on today. Hopefully we can have you, um, we'll be able to do a conference and you can present your paper. So Yeah, that would I be great. Um, yeah, yeah, your passion, your insights, everything is just absolutely amazing. So really appreciate your time. Well, thank you both. I appreciate you having me here today to talk about this. That concludes our third episode of Rewriting the Narrative women in the justice system. Thank you for listening and thanks also to our special guest criminologist Dr Rachel Hale and of course my co-host Lisa, program coordinator for the Living Free Project. Please join us next week where we'll be chatting with Victoria Legal Aid lawyers Rebecca Glue and Hannah Lethleen on the topic of women in the legal system, unique challenges, barriers and experiences.